0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Asma Khalid. We begin with a historic vote on Capitol Hill. George Santos is now the sixth man ever to be expelled from the House. In Iowa, the countdown to the caucuses have begun as Republicans prepare to pick their presidential candidate. Also the view from Dubai, what it means for an oil rich nation to host the major UN climate summit. Plus a visit to a rehabilitation camp for Ukrainian children. And it'll be a solemn night in Bethlehem this Christmas.
1: No lights, no decorations. No one feels, no one is in a mood to celebrate.
0: Christian Palestinians cancel Christmas celebrations and call for a ceasefire. First, the news. It's Saturday, December 2nd, 2023.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. International aid deliveries to Gaza have slowed to a trickle in the first 24 hours since the end of the temporary truce between Israel and Hamas. NPR Scott Newman
3: is in Tel Aviv. During the week-long ceasefire, around 200 trucks carrying food, water, medical supplies and fuel were getting into Gaza each day. But the United Nations warned it fell far short of what was needed by the Palestinian territories more than 2 million people after some 50 days of Israeli bombardment. Now that the truce is over, things are far worse. By the first day of renewed combat operations, a UN official told NPR that only 50 trucks managed to get into Gaza via a crossing with Egypt, but none of them were carrying badly needed fuel for generators. As the fighting in Gaza continues, international aid groups say they are scrambling to prevent a full-scale humanitarian catastrophe. Scott Newman, NPR News,
2: Tel Aviv. National Security Advisor John Kirby has said the U.S. will continue to push for an increase of aid trucks into Gaza, at least to the level that entered during the pause in fighting. New Environmental Protection Agency rules aim to slash climate warming methane from the oil and gas industry by 80 percent in 15 years. NPR's Jeff Brady reports on the strict new regulations the Biden administration announced at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai.
4: Methane is the main ingredient in natural gas, and it's even more potent at warming the climate than carbon dioxide. The new rules include a long list of regulations to restrict methane emissions from oil and gas operations. They include better monitoring for leaks and a super-emitter program where third parties can detect leaks and then report them to the EPA. John Goldstein is with the Environmental Defense Fund. It is a big, big deal. Um, This is the first time that the United States is comprehensively addressing both new and existing wells. Though some oil companies support the new rules for methane, it's likely
2: they'll face a court challenge. Jeff Brady, NPR News. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Dubai where she pledged an additional $3 billion to the largest international fund devoted to supporting climate change and uh, climate action, rather, in developing countries. The money is subject to congressional approval. In New York, candidates already lining up for George Santos's congressional seat. Santos was expelled from Congress yesterday, leaving House Republicans with an even narrower majority. But Nassau County GOP Chair Joe Cairo says more than 20 people have already expressed interest. We'll
4: have our committee
5: look to see the credentials of the people, to see if they reflect the uh, philosophy of the Republican
2: Party, to see who's most electable. Instead of a traditional primary, county party leaders will choose the nominees to run in a special election. The date has yet to be set by New York Governor Kathy Hochul. This is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. On Beacon Hill, House members meet today in a rare weekend session to try to pass a nearly $3 billion supplemental budget. That includes $250 million in emergency funding for the state's overburdened shelter system. Republicans blocked the vote twice in the past two days, arguing that the state is spending too much money on the growing number of unhoused migrant families. A family is demanding answers after their five-year-old daughter was left alone on a school bus Thursday. WBZ reports the child was supposed to be dropped off at a preschool in Dartmouth. She fell asleep on the bus and was left alone for about five hours before a supervisor found her. Police are investigating the incident. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is embarking on the city's annual Enchanted Trolley Tour to spread holiday cheer this weekend. Her route starts at 11 this morning in West Roxbury and runs through several neighborhoods before wrapping up in Brighton this evening. The mayor heads to several more neighborhoods tomorrow. Last like night, the Celtics beat the 76ers 125-119. to 119. Tonight, the Bruins take on the Maple Leafs in Toronto. It's 48 degrees in Boston, mostly
7: cloudy today. Highs in the mid-50s. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org.
6: The news cycle didn't let up in 2023. A earthquake with a magnitude of 7.8. In hit. With seven
8: the sweeping 30. and historic indictment of a former president. The United Auto Workers are on a historic strike this
6: COVID moment. public health emergency is ending. NPR and this station will follow the news wherever it takes us next year too. Join us and please donate to this station today. And you can do that by making this phone call, 1-800-909-9287. You can also go to WBUR.org. Uh, you're listening to Weekend Edition Saturday. You This matters to you. You've let us know that in many ways over many years. Right now, we're calling on you to go ahead and make a year end contribution to WBUR. You've been thinking about year end contributions to organizations that are important to you and to the community. We suspect if you think about it, WBUR is on that list 1 800 909 9287 or go to WBUR.org, start a monthly gift that will have an impact far beyond the amount that you contribute. So give it WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
3: WBUR is doing some of our most ambitious work in journalism at a time where journalism is under attack. politically, under attack economically, and we need more members and more member dollars to be able to keep pace with the news coming at us. We had a historical vote in Congress yesterday that expelled uh, New York Republican Congressman George Santos. You want to know, what does that mean for the country more broadly, for all of us? And We will bring that to you, but we can't do it without your help. So please go to the phone, call 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org and make a contribution. And here is an example of what you will make possible when you support WBUR right now.
9: Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the Senior Editor of Cognoscenti, WBUR's ideas and opinion page. One of my very favorite COG essays is about the power of admitting our own ignorance. Leah Hager Cohen wrote the piece. She's an author and a college writing instructor. Her essay for us became the basis of a whole book about the courage to say, I don't know. Here's a little bit of her essay. The condition of being human involves an awful lot of not knowing. The more we're able to acknowledge this, the more unabashedly we may inhabit our own skins. Leah writes that our culture often places value on judging and gatekeeping, but the freedom to say, I don't know, honors vulnerability. It chews away the tendency many of us have to pretend to know more than we do, because we're fearful of being found out or excluded. It's the kind of self-protection that can make you feel more disconnected and lonely. We don't know everything at WBUR, we don't purport to, but in our work to seek truth, facts, and understanding, we value the chance to be a trusted member of your community.
6: And that is the storytelling that we are asking you to foster with your monthly contribution right now at WBUR. When you give a little bit each month, you're giving to our entire community. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
3: The largest share of funding here at WBUR comes from listeners who go beyond listening and support WBUR voluntarily. And that's what we're asking you to do this morning, to take a moment and think about what WBUR means to you, to your family, to our community, and give what you can to sustain this journalism for for all of us, for everybody who depends on WBUR, including many people who just aren't in a position to give right now. We get that. Stick around with us. We love that you're here. WBUR has no paywall. We never will. And that makes us different than a lot of other news sources that have to have a paywall to fund their journalism. We are different. We exist on voluntary contributions. And that's why it's so important to Become a member today with a contribution at WBUR.org or 1 800 909 9287. We have a nice warm winter WBUR hat for you as our thanks for your contribution of anything you give beginning at $5 a month. You want to give that, you'll get the hat. You give 10, 15, you can also get the hat. It's our thanks this morning for your support of WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven is the number to call and the website where you can give as W is WBUR
10: This
0: is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this Saturday morning. Scott Simon is away. I'm Asma Khalid. The 118th Congress has been turbulent, surprising, and in many ways unprecedented. This week, it was on brand.
3: George Santos is a liar. My future former colleague is divorced from reality. He not only defrauded the voters of the 3rd District, he defrauded donors, stealing their money for personal gain.
0: And after a historic vote yesterday, New York Republican George Santos became the third member since the Civil War to be expelled from the House of Representatives. Joining me now to talk about all of this is NPR's Ron Elving. Good morning, my friend.
11: Good to be with you, Osma.
0: So three hundred and eleven members of the House voted in favor of giving Santos the boot. That was well over the required two-thirds. And that came even though Republican leadership did not support Santos's expulsion. So Ron, how are you interpreting all of this?
11: Well, it's long been argued that the House of the Senate should not vote to expel until an accused member has been convicted in a court of law. And in this case, Santos faces multiple federal charges for fraud and other crimes, but he won't come to trial until well into next year. That would mean another year of bad stories in the media hurting not only Santos, but other New York Republicans as well. And they were important to driving this expulsion. In the face of all this, others might have simply resigned. Uh, But when Santos wouldn't do that, Roughly half his Republican colleagues joined the Democrats in pushing him out the Mm door.
0: All right. So with that bit of business wrapped up and with just a couple of weeks left before the holiday break, Ron, has there been any movement on government funding, any movement on this military aid to Israel and Ukraine?
11: Negotiators from the House and Senate are seeking a series of deals between the parties uh, that could keep the federal government open and operating in the new year. Much of that is happening off the floor, so progress is hard to assess. But the necessity of getting some kind of spending agreement also makes this a vehicle for other big issues in contention. So members really want more military aid for Ukraine, some Mm -hmm. of them. Some really want it for Israel. And some Republicans in particular are seeing this as an opportunity to get what they want, on border security and the immigration system. uh, This could help get that done, or it could add another degree of difficulty. But at least the parties are talking.
0: All right, Ron, I want to ask you about this new book that is coming out on Monday by former Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Some excerpts are already out there. What can you tell us based on what you've seen?
11: Liz Cheney is already regarded as a martyr by millions of Americans, and as a traitor by millions of others. Uh, Three years ago, she sacrificed her own aspirations to stop what she saw as a threat to the Constitution and democracy, a threat named Donald Trump. Uh, She was appalled by the January 6th attack on the Capitol and has devoted herself to holding Trump accountable. It cost her her job in the House leadership. Uh, It cost her her shot at being the first Republican woman speaker. And ultimately, it cost her her seat in Congress. So in this book, it's called Oath and Honor, a Memoir and a Warning – Cheney calls out the other Republican leaders she calls, quote, enablers and collaborators, unquote, including Kevin McCarthy, whom she said was unwilling to, was unwilling to do what they needed to do that day and thereby cooperated with Trump in trying to subvert the 2020 election process, toss out the results, and keep Trump in power.
0: So finally, Ron, former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor died this week. She was the first woman appointed to the high court. Your thoughts.
11: Sandra Day O'Connor will always be remembered not only as the first woman on the Supreme Court where she was the voice of moderate conservatism, but also as a voice for moderation in general. She established a kind of middle ground on the abortion issue. She could have cast a vote that would have overturned Roe v. Wade in the late 1980s, but instead she looked for the middle ground that might be established in legal terms. She created an equilibrium on abortion rights that lasted several decades, and she brought that kind of legal temperament to other issues as well. Since her retirement in 2005, she's been sorely missed, and she will be so for many years to come.
0: That is NPR's Ron Elving. Always good to talk to you, Ron.
11: Thank you, Asma.
0: Hundreds of Palestinians suspected of being involved in the October 7th Hamas attacks on southern Israel are being held in Israeli prisons. That's according to Israeli NGO Hamokt. These prisoners join thousands of other Palestinians arrested in Gaza and the West Bank, accused but often not even convicted of crimes. In total, an estimated 7,000 Palestinians are in prison, including many minors and activists. Nearly 2,900 of those detainees are held without Trial. So how does the Israeli judicial system handle these cases? Well, to help us answer that question, we're joined now by Jor Sadot. She's the spokesperson for Bet Salem, an Israeli nonprofit focused on human rights. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's start with the overall picture of how the Israeli judicial system handles Palestinians detained or formally charged. How would you characterize the system?
12: So the system is actually not the Israeli court system. It's the military court system, meaning that it operates uh, differently on Israelis than on Palestinians. The Palestinians who are being arrested are being prosecuted in a military court under military rule. And so what do we know about these? Uh,
0: would you describe them as military tribunals then?
12: Yes, yeah, It's basically um, prosecutors and the judges are soldiers operating under uh, military laws. And it's much more a political means of control than a justice system.
0: How does it fundamentally differ from the regular court system in Israel? I understand you're saying that the prosecutors, the judge are all soldiers, um, but in other ways, is it fundamentally different?
12: Yes, uh, many accuses and many uh, arrests are being done by charges that inside of Israel they won't be charged such as throwing stones and stuff like that, that the military uh, court will charge with much more punishment than in the Israeli court. But I think the most fundamental thing is the fact that the rates of convictions are almost 100%. And this is not a mistake. It doesn't happen because all the detainees and all the arrests and all the people who being charged are guilty. It's because the Palestinians uh, are being detained until the end of the proceedings. And this is the thing that will not happen in the Israeli court, right? Because a person up until he's being charged and convicted, he's supposed to be innocent. This is why many Palestinians are already like serving many time uh, in prison while the proceedings are happening. And this is why they will almost always will go to bargain, and then they will plead guilty. So this is like the, how the system works. Some of the things that
0: the Palestinians in prison are being accused of, like throwing rocks, are not things that they would be convicted or charged with in a normal Israeli court system. Help me understand that disparity and how or why are they able to be charged with things that would normally not be seen as crimes? The
12: rules that apply on Palestinians in the West Bank are not the rules that apply to Israelis, right? We're living in this apartheid system in which Israelis, even if they live in the West Bank, there will be under the Israeli law. And the Israeli law is different than the military law. For example, to protest in the West Bank under the military law is unlawful, right? This is, of course, not the case inside of Israel under the Israeli law. And are there trials that take place? So there are trials, but there are more than 2,873 uh, administrative uh, detainees. And administrative detainees is actually a very it's a unlawful way of charging people without any evidence. Basically, it means that Israel detains people because they think that they might do something in the future.
0: Are the Palestinians able to access any sort of legal representation? Do they have lawyers?
12: Yes, they can have lawyers and there is a trial. But again, most of the trials are being ended with a plea bargain. The judge is not neutral. There is no Palestinian judges in the military court. The oppressor is also the judge.
0: Israel's Minister of National Security tweeted that Hamas fighters are being held in the, quote, harshest conditions, eight handcuffed terrorists in a dark cell, iron beds, toilets in a hole in the floor and the Israeli national anthem constantly playing in the background. He also called the fighters Nazis. And so with that context, is there pressure, I guess, internally within Israel to ensure that these fighters receive a failed trial? And how does that square with perhaps some of the international pressure?
12: Well, um, it's a tough question. I guess that unfortunately in Israel, the call for revenge and the dehumanization that is being uh, held is so high that to hear all his deserved rights, it's very rare. You won't see any internal pressure on this at the moment as much as you won't hear many pressure on ceasefire or many pressure on any kind of rights to, of Palestinians, even if they're not Hamas. And you'll see dehumanization that comes from top. And then you'll see in the West Bank soldiers that are being like uh, humiliating and torturing Palestinians. And I mean, it it sinks down. That's
0: Jor Sadot, the spokeswoman for the Jerusalem-based nonprofit Betzalem. Thank you very much for taking the time.
12: Thank you very much.
0: For additional coverage and for differing views and analysis of the conflict, go to npr.org slash mideastupdates. listening to NPR News.
7: WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson. Ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News and World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal, babson.edu slash grad programs. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit BlueCrossMA.com go. I'm Scott Simon. Your
11: monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
6: And that bears repeating: wbur dot org or one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Candace Springer of WBUR is here with me. And uh, coming up on Weekend Edition, you'll get an analysis of the motivations and implications of the United Arab Emirates, a top producer of oil. Hosting this year's United Nations Climate Summit, that and much more is ahead on Weekend Edition. But uh, just for a moment, we want you to pause and think about what Weekend Edition means for you and make a contribution 1 800 909 9287 or go to WBUR.org. Keep in mind, listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism, it is the largest share of our funding. You are listening, You appreciate what you hear. Or at least we hope you do. We hope that you can make that contribution now. 1-800- 909-9287 or WBUR.org. And you know, NPR is making a significant
13: investment in covering the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And that investment means that we've sent lots of teams from Morning Edition and All Things Considered to report from Israel and Gaza. And visual journalists are on the ground as well. Um, and this is an Expensive story to cover. So we can't do it without the financial support of you, our listeners. So we're asking you to maybe start a monthly contribution to WBUR by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. And before she returned to Boston to run WBUR, our CEO, Margaret Lowe, spent decades at NPR in Washington running the news division and overseeing hundreds of journalists across the country and around the world. And she talked with Morning Edition host Rupert Shanoi about what it takes for NPR to cover a story as complex as the conflict between Israel and Hamas.
14: It takes a lot. Uh, The first job is to make sure you're covering the conflict as completely as possible with up-to-the-minute reporting, providing context, perspective, history, and human stories that really help us understand what people are experiencing. The war between Israel and Hamas is one of the most difficult stories we will ever cover. It's heated and complex and excruciating from just about every angle. We try to shed light on what's happening and to help people make some sense of what can seem utterly senseless and to do that with a level of sophistication and sensitivity and skill.
6: And, you know, this is also one of the most expensive stories we will ever cover. Mm -hmm. Um, You rely on WBUR. We hope that you will take a minute to make a contribution at WBUR.org. You can also call 1-800-909-9287.
13: And we do have a special gift to say thank you if you can do that for us today. You could get the latest WBUR winter hat as our thanks for even a gift of $5 a month or more. You will send that contribution to us and we will be able to bring you more of the journalism that you rely on, and we'll give you that special winter hat to keep your ears nice and warm. Looks like it's uh, got some microfleece lining, and it's navy and gray, which is nice. It blends with everything. It's got a little cute pom-pom on it, and best of all, you'll be walking around town repping WBUR and showing your support for Boston's NPR News Station, so
6: fashionable. <laughs> yeah, and you know, Candace, it isn't just a pom-pom. It's a two-tone pom-pom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, 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 I like to say, you know, we don't have paywalls here at WBUR. No but boy oh boy do we have hats. We sure do. <laughs> and so and again your your gift of $5 a month or more. So really pretty much anything you give you can uh, choose to get this WBUR hat, but that that gift, that contribution from you is so important. Um, This could not happen without you. When you support WBUR, you're not just supporting your own listening, you're supporting journalism that informs a whole community. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And thanks.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world. And every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org From StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. One major point of contention at this year's UN climate talks known as COP28 in Dubai, the host country is a major oil producer. And the man leading the talks? Well, he heads the country's national oil company. NPR's Aya Batrawi is at the conference in Dubai and joins us now. Hey, Aya. Hi, Esma. So before we dig into some of the controversy, remind us, what's the main focus of these climate talks?
16: Well, it is keeping to the goal of not allowing the earth to warm past 1.5 degrees celsius because if you go above that threshold science says we're going to see catastrophic sea level rises more extreme heat and the almost total loss of coral reefs but if we're going to get there scientists say we have to slash our carbon emissions nearly in half by 2030 and basically what that means is burning less fossil fuels like coal oil and gas and we're nowhere near there and so one of the main debates at this summit is what countries will agree to when it comes to their commitments to burning fossil fuels and which countries are actually going to pay the hundreds of billions of dollars needed a year to help poorer countries suffering some of the worst impacts of climate change even though they've contributed the very least to this crisis.
0: So uh, how is this year's host the United Arab Emirates influencing these talks?
16: So first, let me just put you where I am. This is happening, this event, at a sprawling site in the desert. It was the site of the World's Fair, the expo a few years ago, and it's very warm here in December. So there's a lot of air conditioning, a lot of electricity being consumed to keep this event running. And this kind of all exemplifies the paradox that the man the UAE chose to lead the talks represents. He's Sultan Al Jaber. So not only is he a major renewables company chairman, But he's also, as you noted, the CEO of the state oil company, and he argues that oil and gas companies have to be part of this transition and have to be part of the talks. And here's what he told the summit about that.
17: We must look for ways and ensure the inclusion of the role of fossil fuels. I know there are strong views about the idea of including language on fossil fuels and renewables in the negotiated text.
16: Yeah, I mean, and he's saying like, look, the UAE can help push these oil companies to make changes. But what he's also saying is that the world is demanding more, not less, investments in oil and gas. They want Gulf countries to increase their production. So they know that this isn't going to last forever, though. That's why they're investing a lot of money in both renewable energy projects in Africa, for example, as well as their own oil and gas investments. And
0: do these interests undermine the whole point of the conference? I mean, it sounds like they must not be making these arguments without any sort of controversy.
16: Yeah, I mean, the UAE really wants to have this successful COP, they want to be known for being the bold ones that engaged with the oil industry, but it's really not clear what kind of language can come out of the talks when it comes to fossil fuels, which are the backbone of this country's economy and its international clout, the reason it can hold this event. So I wanted to know kind of what are the point of these gatherings, especially when countries still haven't agreed on phasing out fossil fuels. And I asked Cassie Flynn, she's the Global Director of Climate Change at the UN Development Program.
18: We really do need conferences like this. Um, We need the world to convene on it. Because it can't just be about a handful of countries or, or a handful of even companies that come together and start to make decisions, because the climate crisis affects everyone.
16: And she gave the example to me of the Pacific Island nation of Tuvalu, where rising sea levels are a real threat right now. And they've contributed next to nothing in emissions. But she's like, this is a place, the COP talks, where countries like that can meet with these big, powerful emitters like the United States and China and be heard. And she says they've gotten results. Like that 1.5 degree target, for instance, is something vulnerable nations had really fought for. So it is a messy process. Mm -hmm. It's uneven. There's a lot of pushback. But that's why these talks are held. That's NPR's Aya Batrawi
0: reporting from the COP28 summit in Dubai. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Asma. Former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are in Iowa today. They're trying to make headlines and woo voters ahead of the first contest in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. That's the Iowa caucuses on January 15th. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters has been covering all the campaigning leading up to caucus night. And Clay joins us now. It's great to have you with us.
19: Yeah, great to be here.
0: So let's begin with what Ron DeSantis is exactly doing in Iowa today.
19: Well, he's just trying to be successful in the caucuses by playing the traditional Iowa caucus strategy. He's going to be in the small town of Newton, where he is wrapping up his 99 county tour. That's every county in Iowa which has been a winning strategy for the last three Republican caucus winners. One thing DeSantis has that past caucus winners really haven't is that he'll be joined today by Iowa's governor, Kim Reynolds, who, like him, won her midterm race by double digits last year and has actually endorsed him. I mean, you have to go back 30 years to former Governor Terry Branstad's first stint in office to find the last time a sitting Iowa governor actually backed a candidate ahead of the caucuses. We're talking about Bob Dole. Uh, So yeah, DeSantis continues to call for Trump to debate him as well. He held a virtual press conference with Iowa reporters this week where he said he wants an RNC debate in Iowa. And if he doesn't show up to that, I think there's gonna be a lot of caucus
4: goers who are gonna say, well, wait a minute. Uh, How are we gonna go with him when he's not even willing to come here and make the case to us.
0: So on that note, Clay, what is Donald Trump planning to do today?
4: Well,
19: he'll be here as well. He's holding a caucus event at a restaurant and bar in suburban Des Moines and one at a community college in Cedar Rapids. Uh, it's noteworthy that Trump's events are happening before and after DeSantis's 99th county tour stop. It's been common for Trump to try and steal the spotlight away from his competitors, especially DeSantis.
0: Mm-hmm. So... Polls, you know, only give us a limited picture of the entire political environment. That being said, pretty much every poll we've seen of the Republican presidential field shows Donald Trump well ahead of his competitors, both nationally and in Iowa. And so, Clay, that leaves me wondering, are you seeing anything on the ground that might shift that or paint a potentially different picture from what we're seeing in the polls?
19: Well, we are seeing some movement among those in the Republican Party who have been from the outset kind of clamoring for one alternative to Donald Trump. DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, seen as the two battling for second place right now, are increasingly outsourcing central parts of their campaigns. The Associated Press reports DeSantis recently encouraged his donor network privately to support a newly formed super PAC that's taking over advertising responsibilities for him. And and Haley's political campaign won the support of the Koch Network. That's the large conservative organization with a lot of cash on hand. Uh, DeSantis and Haley are seen as the biggest rivals to Trump, but they're not coming anywhere near the former president in these polls, Mm -hmm. as you said a moment ago.
0: Iowa voters, as those of us who cover politics know well, are very politically engaged. Um, With a frontrunner so far ahead, as we're seeing with Donald Trump, is that engagement or interest in politics tapering off? How does it compare to years past?
19: Well, there seems to be some voter fatigue out there with kind of a seemingly foregone conclusion, maybe of who the Republican nominee is gonna be. But now that we're in the home stretch, I'm mostly interested to hear what Iowa voters are saying as the caucuses are right around the corner. Have they convinced friends and family to caucus for someone? Are they bringing people to hear from the candidates? And remember, the caucuses are not a primary election. Iowans have to show up at a set time. That's 7 p.m. on caucus night. It's not at their normal polling place. And with snow in the forecast this weekend, I mean, it's a reminder. You have to really want to show up on a cold night because this isn't just showing up at your polling place on January 15th to just cast a ballot and then be done with it.
0: All right. That's Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters. Always good to talk to
19: you. Likewise, thank you.
0: A sad reality of all the wars and conflicts in the world is the trauma it causes children. NPR's Hannah Polmarenko visited a rehabilitation camp for Ukrainian children who have witnessed death,
20: survived bombings, and lost family. By most appearances, Gen Camp is like any other modern residential school. Classrooms are busy with children and teachers. Signs tell students to wash their hands outside a playground and swimming pool. But the goal of this school in western Ukraine, they asked us not to name its location for safety reasons, isn't just to learn maths and history. Psychologists are also teaching these 40 students, traumatized by the horrors of war, how to listen to their emotions, how to grow and plan for their future. Natalia Moroz is the director of this camp now hosting its seventh group of kids. It is equally difficult every time, she says. And you think you have heard everything, but life throws more and more terrible stories. All of the kids at this school have had their parents die in the war, says Oksana Lebedeva, founder of the broader-gen Ukrainian project as she walks towards a classroom. They now can talk only about those who died, she says. Each child is asked to make a pillow to sleep with as a companion. I drew a pillow gamer, says nine-year-old Nazar Shulga, because I used to play Call of Duty with my dad. And now I can play too, but without my dad, because he died in the war. Ivan Shulga, Nazar's father, Worked as a sound engineer on popular Ukrainian TV projects. But at the beginning of the full-scale invasion, he became a fighter Mm -hmm. and went to the front. He died on the June 14th this year. On June 15th we found out that he was killed, Nazar says. My mother and I did not believe it, even when they brought his documents. I couldn't believe he was dead. Project psychologist, Vatui Martirasan notes that it is important to be frank with each child, not to avoid the fact of death. If possible, she says, it is necessary to involve the child in the rituals of saying farewell to the deceased. Hundreds of people came to Nazar's father's funeral in Kyiv, he says, family, friends, colleagues, and fellow soldiers. I believed only then, he says, when I saw his face, It was so cold. I just wanted to look only at him. What you need to know about children's grief, says Lebedeva, the project's founder, is that either they feel terrible or they behave like normal children. What she means is children can cry, then play, then laugh, then get distracted and then be sad again. But some aren't able to move past the trauma. Lebedeva says art therapy can show which children have greater needs. I'll show you a picture that one girl drew, she says. It is a picture that makes you not want to leave, but if you meet her, she is just an ordinary girl with a ball. The picture shows a skeleton, internal organs, all the details, Lebedeva says, that indicate more help is needed. Other Gen Camp children drew pictures of mutilated bodies, scary toothed monsters, an eyes peering out of darkness, scenes of warfare. 10 year old Lyuba, who didn't want her last name used, likes drawing war most of all. I always draw the war, she says. In my drawings, I have the Ukrainian side tanks and Russian military equipment that is completely broken. She also draws civilians, soldiers, and medics. Unfortunately, my father was a medic, says Luba. Her mother told her about her father's death on the day of the funeral. I was very sorry, she recalls. Now she dreams of growing up and becoming a military medic like her father. But she also draws doves as a symbol of peace. The children, some up to 18 years old, are here for three weeks, where they can learn tools to cope with their trauma. Psychologists here acknowledge that not every child is going to heal. But they keep in contact after the kids leave. Children's psyche is very flexible and can recover up to 100%, Lebedeva says. And she believes, with the right efforts, every child who has faced terrible events will be able to live a full and happy life. Though she says some return to the camp for more treatment. After group psychotherapy and a lunch, the children from Gen Camp have a surprise. Outside, an improvised stage has been built. A famous Ukrainian singer, Svetlana Tarabarova, is here to perform for the children. Life goes on, the night will pass, no one can break you, sings Tarabarova. The children are applauding, crying, and laughing. Nine-year-old Nazar is dancing with his new friends. Lyuba is singing along. They're being kids, normal kids, in a situation that is anything but. Hanna Palomarenko, NPR News, Western Ukraine.
0: You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org and Xfinity internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. As you support the organizations that have deep
12: meaning in your life, please give to WBUR. I'm Rupa Shenoy. A gift of 10 or $15 a month will become something much bigger. It'll create more of the stories we all need to make sense of the world. And it'll inform the conversations that make your world bigger. Turn your small gift into something much bigger. Give at wbor.org or call 1 800 909 9287.
6: Thank you for your contribution. Thank you for joining us this morning here on 90.9 WBUR for Weekend Edition Saturday. Just ahead, WBUR's Miriam Wasser has the story on the Healy administration publishing the state's first ever report card on its climate progress. But again, first, we are asking you to pause for just a moment to make a contribution to support our independent journalism. Go to WBUR.org or call one 800 eight90 nine nine two eight seven and we encourage you to make that contribution right now WBUR's Candace Springer is here in the studio to tell you why It's because we have some
13: generous listeners who have stepped up in the next 16-ish minutes, only till 9 o'clock, to match your gift dollar for dollar. So whether you're making a monthly contribution right now and you want to increase your gift or you just want to give a one-time gift, all of those gifts in this next few minutes are going to be matched dollar for dollar, which means that you get to double your support to give WBUR the resources we need to keep bringing you the news you've come to rely on, as well as podcasts and events at City Space and everything that you love about WBUR. So again, this match is only going to last for the, until nine o'clock. Get on it at WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org. Or you can call 1-800-909-9287. I'm environmental reporter Miriam Wasser.
18: Here at WBUR, we want to help you understand climate change and its impacts. So we talk to experts about things like heat waves, sea level rise and flooding and how that affects you.
1: It's not just the extreme events, it's about the daily disruptions that are going to become more and more frequent. We cover our community as it pushes for action.
12: How many more of us young people have to sacrifice our futures? before you declare a climate emergency.
18: And we tell stories about policies and technologies that could provide solutions.
3: It's like the industrial revolution all over again, a clean energy industrial revolution.
18: But we can't do this type of work without you. Consider making a monthly donation of 10 or $15. It helps us bring you these important stories every day. You can give now at wbur.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And from all of us at the station, Thanks.
6: Again, another reason to give right this very second is that for just about the next 14 minutes, a dollar for dollar matches. In effect, that means your monthly contribution to WBUR is matched dollar for dollar. That's only in effect until nine, but you don't really need to think about that because if you take care of it right now, the rest of those 13 or so minutes don't really matter. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And remember, you have a special additional reason to give right now. Yep, we have a really cute WBUR hat
13: that can be yours for any monthly contribution that you can give. So you'll be able to impact, maximize the impact of your gift because we have that dollar for dollar match. And you will get this very cute hat with braided tassels and a delicious (laughs) pom-pom. You'll be the fashion plate of the year with this WBUR
6: winter hat if you give your monthly contribution today. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thanks.
0: As long as the sniffles have existed, so have home remedies for them. For people with roots in Eastern Europe, one of those remedies is known as guggle-muggle. As Dina Pritchip reports, it's the stuff of childhood memories, both good and bad.
21: It's hard to pinpoint the first appearance of guggle-muggle.
1: It seems to be one of those things... Like chicken soup, it's always been there. Eve
21: Joknowitz is a Yiddish teacher who researches the history of Jewish food.
1: They begin with grinding up the sugar or some honey, mixing it with the egg yolks, and then beating in hot milk.
21: There are slightly different versions of this recipe. Sometimes a shot of brandy or slivovitz was thrown in, occasionally some chocolate. And Joknowitz says it was found across Europe.
1: From Czechoslovakia in the West, as far as the borders of the Russian Empire in the East, I would say.
21: And with immigration, guggle-muggle made its way into America. The late New York City mayor, Ed Koch, gave out his version at a press conference in 1987.
11: My suggestion uh, is a minimum, if you really want to get cracking on the cold, A minimum of three guggle-muggles a day.
21: (laughs) In a recent interview on WHYY's Fresh Air, singer Barbara Streisand recalled her mother
5: recommending it after her first real gig. The first thing she said, I remember, was, your voice needs eggs. Uh, You have to use a guggle-muggle because your voice needs to be stronger.
21: Now, some people have sweet memories of parents and grandparents bringing a guggle-muggle to their sickbed. But a lot of people dreaded it, especially when the egg was raw, like in the goggle muggle Barbara Streisand's mother made.
5: Which I could never swallow. Ugh.
21: This concoction has become more of a memory, likely due to the rise of over-the-counter medicines and lowering tolerance for giving raw eggs and alcohol to children. According to Michał Korkosz, a food writer in Poland, you can still find goggle muggle in Eastern Europe, but as a dessert. And even then, it's seen as a relic of the past.
18: During the communist times, where there was no sweet treats in the stores, my mother, she would make the mogiel at home.
21: The Polish version is more like an egg foam, a cloud of just whipped eggs and sugar, like the beginning of a sponge cake.
18: It's so fluffy, it's so creamy, it has its
21: richness. But Korkosz says sometimes, when someone was sick, his grandmother would pour in a little hot milk, turning this dessert into a remedy.
20: Sweet treat,
18: but somehow milk makes it a medicine, right?
21: <laughs> Which raises the question, does guggle-muggle actually do anything medicinally? Dr. Diane Pappas is a pediatrician at the University of Virginia who researches cough management in kids. She says,
17: Meh. We don't have any really good evidence that honey does a whole lot for cough. There's a few studies that say it might help a little bit. They're not great quality
21: but it's really all we have. Papa says if you want a guggle-muggle, go for it. Calories and warm fluids always help. And as long as the egg is fully cooked and you're not giving honey to infants, it's fine.
17: I don't know that there are downsides unless you put the
22: alcohol
21: in it. Um, don't know that there's a huge upside either. Papa says while she can't ethically prescribe placebos, that effect can play a role in all sorts of things people take hoping to feel better. And Polish food writer Michał Korkosz says there's also the comfort of tradition.
18: I always compare dishes from our childhood as in like a warm blanket. They're like so cozy and they are so delicious. They reminds you when you were the happiest in your life.
21: Which may be the perfect thing when you're feeling crummy. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchett.
5: It's home remedy When you put your arms around me I know the working day is
0: through This is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. The Healy administration has published the state's first ever report card on its climate progress. It finds that while Massachusetts is likely on track to meet its 2025 emissions reductions goals, Meeting its longer-term goals is far from certain. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports the state has made a lot of progress slashing emissions, but ramping up to where we need to get to won't be easy or cheap. Massachusetts is mandated by state
18: law to zero out planet warming emissions by mid-century. Meeting that goal means doing several things at once. We need to power our cars and heat our buildings with renewable electricity. We need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. And we need to conserve forests and other natural lands so they can store more carbon dioxide. Catherine Antos is the state's Undersecretary of Decarbonization and Resilience. She says the report card shows that the state is doing all of those things, but we need to begin rapidly slashing emissions in the next five or so years.
14: We are at a period where we are entering the
10: hardest part of meeting our climate goals. And so that is why we are both on track, but also we know that interventions are needed
18: Consider the number of electric heat pumps installed. The state is off to a slow start, having accomplished less than a third of its 2025 goal. But the report is optimistic, noting the pace of installations has picked up in the last year and a half. The use of electric vehicles is also increasing, though the severe shortage of publicly available charging stations remains a formidable obstacle. When it comes to bringing more renewables on the grid, the state looks like it will achieve its 2025 goals. But after that, the picture is less clear, says Jeremy McDermott. He's with Advanced Energy United, a clean energy trade association group.
8: I am
4: cautiously optimistic, but things need to change and big things need to happen over the next five years.
18: McDermott said there are some things the state can do, like more quickly approve new infrastructure. But in many ways, the energy future depends on global economic forces. Importantly, the report acknowledges that just focusing on reducing emissions is not enough. A holistic approach to the climate crisis requires planning for extreme weather and making sure vulnerable populations aren't left behind. Julie Wormser works on regional resilience projects with the Mystic River Watershed Association. She says she's heartened to see the state consider equity, but adds that the report card falls short. It doesn't have any measurable goals and benchmarks for environmental justice.
5: What we measure really
18: affects who we're helping. The state's Catherine Antos acknowledges this glaring shortfall but says people are working on developing these metrics for next year's report card. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser.
1: I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We're living in a world where oftentimes it's only those who can afford a subscription who have access to many of the most credible, high quality news sources. However, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, and for free. But we can't take our future for granted. So giving $10 or $20 a month will help give our journalism a strong future for you and for everyone. Give monthly if you can at WBUR.org.
6: And you can also call 1-800-909-9287. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. You're listening to Weekend Edition. Coming up, you'll hear about some constituent responses to yesterday's vote by the U.S. House to expel New York Republican George Santos. But first, uh, as you await that, we'd like you to think about what WBUR means to you and make a contribution, one 800 909 or go to WBUR.org. We are mission-driven. We are not-for-profit, independent journalism. And the way that's supported? voluntary monthly contributions from our listeners those are the largest share of our funding so again we ask you to make a year-end contribution right now 1 800-909-9287 or WBUR.org and WBUR's Candace Springer explains why you need to do that in the next uh, three and a half minutes because we have a
13: dollar for dollar match happening right now and the deadline is just what Sharon said three Three minutes to maximize the impact of your gift so whatever you can give it will be matched dollar for dollar up until 9 o'clock so if you give monthly if you want to give monthly $10 becomes 20 and 15 becomes 30 but any gift in this next few minutes will be matched dollar for dollar so it's the perfect time to reflect on everything that WBUR means to you and to sustain us for years to come go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-
22: This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, (laughs) thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention. And I care deeply about it. And I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. 1-800-909-9287
6: or go to WBUR.org and not to be nudgy, but do that right this very second and And only a few minutes left. That's right, a few minutes left of a dollar-for-dollar match. So if you give $20 a month, your gift becomes $40. Yeah, or if you can give
13: larger gifts, $100 a month, that becomes $200. But also, we should be clear, any gift right now in these next two minutes, will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to some generous listeners from WBUR so again let's dig deep think about how much you would like WBUR to be here for you uh, forever you know and maybe you love podcasts maybe you love city space all of those gifts support everything that we do here at WBUR so in the next one minute 30 seconds please go to wbr.org call 1-800-909-9287 to get in on this dollar for dollar match in the last one minute that we have here
6: And you know what? A lot of times if you're in a gift-giving mode, it's a little bit selfish to give a gift that actually benefits yourself, Mm. Mm -hmm. but that is not the case right now Yes, because you are supporting an entire community of people who count on WBUR. Some of them might not be in a position to make a contribution right now. But if you are, you are obviously, you know, giving yourself a little boost because you're keeping WBUR thriving. You're also supporting WBUR for the entire community, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And the reason to do that right now is for just the next few seconds, uh, a dollar for dollar match is in effect. 909 or go to WBUR.org and thank you.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and
21: WBUR Arts and Culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster.
12: Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The Biden administration says it's phasing out coal-fired power plants and is committed to not building any new ones. NPR's Aya reports that the U.S. made the announcement in Dubai at COP28 the annual U.N. Climate Summit.
16: The U.S. Special Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, says the country's joining the Power Pass Coal Alliance. That's a coalition of governments and organizations committed to not developing new unabated coal power plants and phasing out existing ones. Though on that second point, he didn't say by when. The burning of coal is a greenhouse gas emitter and a key driver of global warming. Phasing out coal power plants is seen as crucial to the bigger goal of keeping global temperatures from rising past 1.5 degrees Celsius to avoid catastrophic sea level rise, more extreme heat waves, and mass extinctions. Biden's climate envoy made the announcement here at the COP28 summit in Dubai. The U.S. has the world's third biggest capacity of operating coal plants behind China and India, but it hasn't built a new coal plant in over a decade. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai.
2: The Israeli military says it has hit hundreds of Hamas targets across the Gaza Strip as a renewed bombardment of the territory stretched into a second day. Some of the heaviest bombing was in southern Gaza, where Palestinians are taking refuge from the conflict and where Israel believes members of the Hamas leadership are now hiding. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza, more than 180 people were killed during airstrikes on Friday. The BBC's Hugo Pacheco is in Jerusalem. Parts of
4: southern Gaza have been heavily hit, including uh, the city of Khan Yunis, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have been sheltering. We've seen uh, images of crowded hospitals that have been under a lot of pressure. The aid agencies have been warning that another wave of displacement could happen if these major uh, centers in southern Gaza, become the targets of this uh, Israeli offensive against Hamas.
2: The Department of Veterans Affairs has formally called on mortgage lenders to pause foreclosures on thousands of people with VA loans. But NPR's Chris Arnold reports that help may not reach other vets who need it.
8: Thousands of veterans were about to lose their homes after part of a VA COVID forbearance program abruptly ended. After an NPR investigation, the VA paused the foreclosures until it gets a new assistance program up and running. But many vets may not get that help. That's because they already ended up in loan modifications that they say are unfair. I feel betrayed. I still feel a sense of betrayal. That's former Marine and Iraq war vet, Joe Mena. His payments went up more than $1,300 a month. Even though I went through the loan modification, if I can't afford it, there should be an option that the VA can give. Like, it's just crazy. The VA says veterans in this situation should reach out and speak to a VA housing counselor. Chris Arnold, NPR News. And this is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. We are learning more about the abrupt ouster of the state's top cannabis regulator in September. State Treasurer Deborah Goldberg suspended Shannon O'Brien with pay without an explanation. A court filing shows that an outside investigator found that O'Brien made several racially, ethnically, and culturally insensitive statements. O'Brien's lawyers argue the allegations lack merit. Mass General Brigham has developed a new online tool to indicate how well you're taking care of your brain. The Brain Care Score System ranks physical, lifestyle, and social-emotional factors. Research has shown a direct link between a higher score and a lower risk of dementia and stroke. One of New England's most well-known car dealerships is rebranding, getting rid of the name, the Boston Globe reports that the change to new car affects several dealerships, including the box stores on the Auto Mile in Norwood. Dan Dages and his son Chris acquired several Bach dealerships in 2015 and are behind the rebrand. It's 48 degrees in Boston. Overcast today. Highs in the mid-50s.
7: WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service. Supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org.
16: Climate change dominated the headlines this year.
7: Wildfires stoked
13: by Hurricane Dora spread across the island of Maui.
16: A
11: dangerously large plume of moisture known as an atmospheric river slams into the region.
13: But there were also stories of hope. This
11: hotline helps people figure out how to save important and objects and buildings after disasters.
16: Invest in the future of climate change coverage on NPR and this station. Here's how.
6: What you do is you call 1-800-909-9287, or you go to WBUR.org. That's how to make your generous contribution uh, to support WBUR. And uh, coming up, uh, you're going to get the latest on the Israel-Hamas war also. You'll consider why every year an estimated one-third of American adults go into debt to pay for holiday expenses. Just some of the stories you'll hear coming up on Weekend Edition Saturday. Think um, for a moment about what this means to you, how much you can count on WBUR, and then please make your contribution. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org.
13: Yeah, the news has had relevance like it's never had before lately, and where the recovery climate change or income inequality or health care. These issues affect us right where we live and WBUR needs a strong future um, and it's far from certain. So we are asking you in this moment to maybe start a monthly gift if you can of $10 or $20. It's one of the best things that you can do to give us the journalism that we all need in these times where we need to make sense of everything that's going on in the world. And On Point host Magna Chakrabarty talked talked about the focus of our journalism now that climate change has taken on a greater urgency.
1: I think people more and more want smart, brave and almost plain spoken conversations about solutions because most of us agree about what the problem is. And now people want to do something and they want to do something not just on the global or or national level, because we know what those targets are. And that takes a lot of political will. But people also want to know more about what they can do locally. So we did this fascinating conversation about the idea of carbon removal, about actual machines that could be part of a future climate solution that would sit there. They look like giant air conditioners, essentially, and they'd suck carbon out of the atmosphere and return it to the ground. Lots of complications around a a solution like that. But it was fascinating to think about, like, what are the edges that we can lean into and and push our knowledge further, push our ability to find solutions further?
6: And, you know, one thing that kind of makes me think about Mm. is the uh, shared concept here of working together. Yes. Um, and in a way, if you take a moment and think about this, uh, supporting WBUR also is about the good we can all do when we band together with a common goal. It's the way we work here at WBUR. Mm-hmm. We collaborate, we work with each other uh, to bring you the best journalism that we possibly can. Um, and when you support this, you are making a contribution that creates the stories and the conversations that uh, enrich your world. So please go ahead and do that now. Make that contribution 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Yeah, and that
13: community effort means that you make up the largest source of our fundraising always, always. All the time, and we rely so much upon that support. Um, and you know, if you can give a monthly gift of at least five dollars, we have a really cute hat that we will send you as a thank you. You know, it's getting cold out there, and the, you know, in New England, and this hat has micro fleece lining. It's got a very cute pom pom and braided tassels, and so you can rep WBUR during the winter, and you can rep WBUR with your gift if you give today by going to. WBUR.org or calling
6: 1-800-909-9287. Once again, that's 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I have this theory about why when I wear a WBUR winter (laughs) hat, um, it it starts more conversations Mm -hmm. than almost any other WBUR insignia thing, which is that... um, not everybody, but there are some of us who are a little bit miserable in the winter <laughs> and people are just looking for a, any 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 spark. Right. And so they see the WBUR. The WBUR matters to them. We get into a conversation and I hope the next thing we know they are contributing to WBUR. We have but
13: good hats. Here. We have
6: <laughs> we we rock the hat game. We do. one 800 909 9287 or go to WBUR.org and thank you.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for joining us. Scott Simon is away. I'm Asma Khaled. Fighting in Gaza continued through the night after the week-long ceasefire collapsed Friday. Israel has launched hundreds of airstrikes against Hamas targets, and Hamas has fired rockets at Israel, including an attack on Tel Aviv intercepted by Israel's air defense system. International aid groups say there is already a severe humanitarian cost from the renewed fighting for the more than 2 million Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Joining us now, now from Tel Aviv is NPR's Brian Mann. Brian, it is good to have you with us. Hi, Ozma. So to begin, can you tell us about the situation on the ground there?
8: Yeah, Gaza's been hit hard over the last 24 hours. Israel's military said this morning they've struck over 400 targets in operations that continued through the night, including an airstrike against a mosque. That Israeli officials say was a command post for militants. Israeli officials say they launched more artillery strikes against Hamas today. Uh, in a statement, Hamas leaders blamed this resumption of fighting on Israel and said Hamas had been willing to prolong the truce. It, it is worth noting, though, that at the same time, Hamas was also taking credit for and celebrating an attack by Palestinian gunmen in Jerusalem uh, this last week uh, that left three Israeli civilians dead. Hmm.
0: And Brian, what is Israel's goal as this fighting has resumed? I mean, how is the bombing also affecting Palestinian civilians who've been caught up in the war?
8: So after the Hamas attack on Israel October 7th that killed roughly 1,200 Israelis, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this war is going to continue until Hamas is eliminated. But, of course, hitting Hamas in the densely populated Gaza Strip means a lot of Palestinian civilians are getting hurt. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, was in a hospital in Rafah, in southern Gaza, as the wounded and dead from these strikes began to arrive.
12: What I'm seeing in front of me is like a crowd of people from the families that, that mourns nine bodies from different families. We do have one, two, or three children in
8: front of me. He's describing their asthma, seeing bodies coming into the hospital, including those of children. This morning, the Ministry of Health in Gaza reported nearly 200 Palestinians killed so far, more than 650 injured since the ceasefire ended.
0: And Brian, you reported yesterday on this situation broadly with Gaza's hospitals, um, that they are near collapse and the lack of equipment and personnel to help all the sick and wounded. They don't have that. I mean, what did you learn?
8: Yeah, everyone we spoke to, Asma, from frontline doctors in Gaza to World Health Organization experts said the situation's grim. In addition to war trauma, the WHO reports a huge spike in illness, a lot of it because of the lack of safe drinking water for Palestinians. Speaking before the fighting resumed, Dr. Mohammed Yasuri at the Nasser Medical Center in Yunis told NPR they were already overwhelmed.
3: As a doctor, I have one, ma- one message. We are in a catastrophe, disaster.
8: And in a statement to NPR, Israeli officials acknowledged the suffering caused by the fighting and and the impact on these medical facilities. They blamed Hamas, saying Hamas fighters have been using these hospitals as cover for military command posts and secret tunnel complexes.
0: Just briefly, Brian, during that pause in fighting, some Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners were freed. What's happening now to those who were not freed during the temporary truce?
8: Well, they're still being held both in Israeli jails and also in Gaza by Hamas, at least 137 Israeli hostages still held. I will say officials from Qatar and the U.S. have been trying to negotiate another truce. But earlier today, Prime Minister Netanyahu's office issued a statement saying those talks are now at an impasse.
0: That's NPR's Brian Mann in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Republican George Santos of New York is just the sixth member of the House of Representatives to have ever been expelled in the nation's history. Desiree DiOrio from Member Station WSHU visited the former congressman's district right after yesterday's House vote and has this report.
17: New York's third congressional district spans from eastern Queens in New York City and further east into the suburbs of Long Island. It's one of the wealthiest districts in the country. On George Santos's last day in office, voters here, like Kurt Eggert, say they won't miss him.
11: I'm a Republican like him, but he did some stuff which I don't agree with. So I believe firmly in what you sow, you're going to reap.
17: Santos has pleaded not guilty to charges of fraud and money laundering. He's been accused of embellishing his resume and experience. But as of now, he hasn't been convicted of a crime. That doesn't matter to the Democrats and Republicans who voted him out of office, or to Egger.
11: He did too many things wrong. You gotta wash your hands at a certain point and get clean. And there's so many other, not just Republicans, Democrats too, who needs to be expelled.
17: It's quiet at Santos's now former office in Queens. District Director Mark Woolley says it's business as usual for him and the staff here.
7: And this is very important that constituents of New York 3 are aware that we're open. We're open for business. Nothing changes.
17: Woolley says maybe now the office can get more work done.
7: My hope now, though, is those levels of government that wouldn't work with Mr. Santos or our office will now work with us.
17: New York Governor Kathy Hochul called Santos's short time in office abysmal.
5: And
7: George Santos just
5: took up space.
17: State law says Hochul must set a date for a special election to be held within the next two to three months. For NPR News, I'm Desiree DiOrio in New York
0: tis the season for spending and shopping. The holidays might bring joy, but they also bring big credit card bills, gifts, decorations, entertaining, travel. It all adds up. In fact, about a third of Americans take on debt every year to pay for the holidays. That's according to surveys from the online lending platform called LendingTree. Matt Schultz is chief credit analyst for LendingTree, and he joins us now to talk about this all. Matt, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So the past few years, you all have found that something like 30 to 35 percent of Americans surveyed take on debt for holiday spending. That means credit cards or, you know, those buy now, pay later programs or even possibly personal loans. Uh, So how much debt are we talking about?
4: Well, last year we saw that people took on about $1,500 in debt. And that's the biggest number that we've seen since we started looking at this back in 2015. And that's a lot of money. I mean, that's the kind of thing that may take a little bit of time to pay off. And given how small the average American's financial margin for error is, every extra bit of debt matters. Mm. So you're expecting something similar this year? I would expect something similar. We saw a pretty good-sized jump from 2021 to 2022. I don't know if we'll see that big of a jump this year, but I think that given inflation sticking around, high interest rates, student loan payments restarting, and a bunch of other financial headwinds that people are facing, I think it's reasonable to think that that average debt number would probably go up at least a little bit.
0: So, you all take another set of surveys before the shopping season begins, where you look at how people are feeling about the holidays financially. This year, about half of Americans say they are, quote, dreading the holidays. And that stat is even higher for parents with young children. Uh, so, I will say, uh, Matt, that sounds not exactly like a happy holidays mood that a lot of folks are thinking about heading into
4: the, the season. What do you make of that? Well, it, it doesn't surprise me, frankly, because The holidays are just an enormously stressful time in about a hundred different ways. And when, when things are difficult financially, it just makes it even more stressful because any parent can tell you how much pressure they feel to make the holidays perfect, whether it's getting all the family together, buying gifts, traveling so the kids can see grandma and grandpa. Holidays are an expensive time.
0: So it is your job to keep a careful eye on all of this. But I've got a personal question for you. I mean, how is your holiday shopping going right now? Do you create a budget? Do you manage to stick to that budget yourself?
4: Um, I probably should stick to a budget, but I generally don't. OK. <laughs> um, and, so what do you
0: advise folks to do?
4: Well, uh, it's 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 kind of a do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. Um, I do think (laughs) that it is still really, really important to try and get the best deals, to shop around, to be cost conscious. And that's true whether you have a higher income or a lower income, because just because you have a higher income doesn't mean that you will avoid having debt. In fact, folks with higher incomes are able to get more credit. And the more credit you have, the more debt you can run out So
0: we hear about how important consumer spending is for the health of the broader American economy. So, you know, if people spend less money, whether that's shopping or traveling this December, I mean, does that not sort of hurt the broader economy. Does our economy sort of depend on people going into debt?
4: Well, our our economy certainly depends on people spending. Basically, the default state in this country is credit card debt. In a way, that debt is a good thing for the economy because that debt goes into businesses' bottom line and turns into jobs and that sort of thing. But it doesn't mean that the debt problem isn't a real issue for a lot of people in this country and continues to get worse.
0: Matt, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Matt Schultz is Chief Credit Analyst for LendingTree. are listening to NPR News.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org and Merrimack Repertory Theater, with A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Charles Dickens' time in Lowell, now through December 24th. Tickets at MRT.org.
0: At NPR and this station, editorial integrity is non-negotiable. Your support ensures that our journalism remains independent. Stand with us and donate right now. 1-800-909-9287.
6: Why am I reciting that phone number? Because that's the number that you call to make a contribution to WBUR. You can also make that contribution by going to WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. You're listening to Weekend Edition here on WBUR. Just ahead on Weekend Edition, you'll get the story on Vice President Kamala Harris at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai. Also, you'll get a cooking lesson with a recipe for stuffed summer squash, that and more coming up. And while you appreciate the range and the depth of the coverage of the news and the cultural information here on WBUR, we hope that you will make a contribution. Make a monthly contribution. It's a great way to support WBUR. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Think about why you choose WBUR. We bring you a deeper examination of our world
13: and our local community and we will hold powerful people to account and sometimes we shine a light where there is none and we have to provide a platform for people who don't have one. So think about whatever your reason is for choosing WBUR and make that the reason that you give A contribution to WBUR in this last fundraiser of the year for us. We're asking you to help us bring WBUR to you because listener support continues to carry us like never before. So you can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And here's an example of the storytelling that listener support makes possible.
9: Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the senior editor of WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. A 2017 essay by Julie Witteschlack gets a lot of attention whenever we repost it. The piece pivots on an old photograph of Julie's mom and dad and her aunt and uncle at the beach. All four have lived through tumultuous times, having survived Nazis and bankruptcy and disease. Yet in that photo, you can't imagine four people more full of life. Julie wonders how they did it. Did they have a stronger sense of agency? Had they simply lost their fear? Neither, she concludes.
5: Those four parents simply loved life's essentials. Food, water, sun, and a herd to huddle with. With a blazing fierceness that parched despair before
9: it could take root. I think people love this essay and keep returning to it because it delivers lessons for our anxious times. That even the most difficult of circumstances can be met with love and gratitude. A big part of my job is to help our authors uncover emotional truths. It's one of the ways our role at WBUR goes beyond telling you the news of the day to bringing you stories that illuminate ideas and foster connection
6: fostering those connections starts with listener support. Please start a monthly gift to keep WBUR strong and to give this essential service a secure future. You can give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism. It is the largest share of our funding and that That's why your tax deductible gift is so important, and why it's so important today. Give WBUR $10 a month if that's what works for you, $30 a month if that's what you're comfortable with. You will be giving WBUR the freedom to report to dive into our approach to independent journalism wbur.org or 1-800-909-9287 and it's getting a little cold outside so if you need extra incentive if you can give even
13: a gift of five dollars a month you can get the latest wbur winter hat as our thanks and we will use your contribution to bring you more of the journalism that you rely upon um it it certainly keep you warm. We're looking at it right now in the studio. It's got a micro fleece lining. It's navy and gray with braided tassels, a two-tone pom-pom and a heathered stripe. And of course, you'll be able to just rock WBUR down the street as it gets warm, as the snow starts falling. So consider giving us that gift today at WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287 and you can get that really special thank you gift of the WBUR hat uh for supporting us.
6: You know Candace, I kind of think the world is divided into people who get really excited at this time of year yes. and those who don't mm-hmm. and this hat is perfect for both of them. It's we in are in the
13: Ven- middle of the Venn diagram exactly.
6: We are, you know, <laughs> it's either going to keep you warm or, you know, and you don't like being cold or you're perfectly happy being cold and it will also keep you warm. And as Candace so eloquently said, you will rock the WBUR logo, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org, and thank you.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend
0: Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. Vice President Harris is in Dubai today. She's there to represent the United States at the annual U.N. Climate Summit, known as COP28. And while she's there, she's also meeting with world leaders to discuss the conflict in the Middle East. White House correspondent Deepa Shivram is traveling with the vice president and joins us now from those climate talks in Dubai. Thanks for being with us, Deepa. Hey, Asma. So it is the vice president's first time at this climate summit and she's making announcements on new investments from the United States. Can you fill us in? What are the specific pledges?
14: Yeah, so there's a couple things the U.S. is rolling out while at this climate summit. And the big one that Harris announced is a $3 billion pledge to the Green Climate Fund. And that's a U.N. fund that helps developing nations deal with the effects of climate change. I will note, though, that this is a pledge and that any new funding would have to be approved by Congress, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is a pretty tall order.
0: Indeed. Indeed. And Deepa, my understanding is this was not the only announcement the administration made at the COP summit today. What else did the Biden administration say?
14: right there's a lot going on at the summit the EPA also announced new federal rules to curtail methane pollution from the oil and gas industries there's an intent from the White House to show that they're trying to tackle the climate crisis on a lot of different fronts by taking government actions for one but also by holding big corporations accountable and there's also an acknowledgement that there's still more to do here's what the vice president said on the main stage today
20: today we are demonstrating through action how the world can and must meet this crisis. This is a pivotal moment. Our action collectively, or worse, our inaction, will impact billions of people for decades to come. So Deepa, turning
0: back to the political environment here in the United States, climate is a major issue for many young voters and they have not been particularly impressed with the Biden administration's action or inaction to date. Uh, How do these politics come into play for the vice president while she's in Dubai?
14: Yeah, I mean, it's very top of mind for the vice president while she's here in Dubai at COP28. A White House official told me that the criticism from younger voters and and the younger generation, you know, coming at this administration actually can be helpful because it helps pressure and push for the government to make more progress. Harris has been trying to energize younger voters around the country because they're a really critical base for Democrats going into 2024. And it's not just climate policy they're unhappy about right now. It's also the way the administration has responded to the Israel Hamas conflict. So
0: I want to ask you a little bit more about that conflict. The vice president is also having meetings today with regional leaders about that conflict between Israel and Hamas and the fighting in Gaza.
14: Who is she talking to and what are they hoping to achieve? She's meeting with Egyptian President Sisi and she's meeting with Jordan's King Abdullah and UAE President Mohammed bin Zayed, who is of course hosting this climate summit here in Dubai. And these meetings are all coming after Israel has resumed attacks on Gaza after that pause in the war. And the White House says Harris is looking to restore the pause but she's also focused on what happens next in gaza after the fighting ends
0: that's npr white house correspondent deepa shivaram thanks so much deepa thank
14: you
22: hi <laughs>
5: We meet
0: Rose Prevett at her Michelin star restaurant, Maidan, in Washington, D.C. Previtt operates four restaurants around the D.C. area, and she's also working on opening up another in L.A. And we came here to her restaurant to cook food, eat, and talk about her debut cookbook called Maidan from Lebanon and Beyond.
10: I want you to explain the name of the restaurant and the name of the cookbook to us. I tell everybody it is a word based in Arabic to Mm -hmm. me, but I learned it in Kiev. Everyone kept saying when we were there, like, meet at Maidan, meet at Maidan. And I was like, what is this? So then I look into the word and I figure out that it's Arabic. It's used in Hindi and Farsi as well. And it means the same thing, only it's pronounced differently. And so a square or a gathering place or somewhere that people came to either celebrate, to mourn, to rebel,
0: to Prevet, Maidan represents a gathering
10: of people. And that's
0: what she wants this cookbook to do, bring people together around a table. This isn't a restaurant cookbook. Some of the hit dishes from her restaurant menus are in here, adapted for the home cook. But so are classic holiday family dishes that she grew up eating in her Lebanese-Italian-American home in Ohio. The recipes in this cookbook tie in the flavors of a wide region, from the Caucasus to the Middle East and North Africa.
10: We try not to credit a country. I try to just tell you the story of how I learned it and where I learned Mm. it. But that doesn't mean they own it, right? Like, I'm not even about to get into the fight about who owns hummus. Like, this is not a thing we want to fight about, right? Our bread... We call it flatbread. You know, we don't call it pita. We don't call it naan. We don't connect it to, like, a specific place because it's actually a collection of recipes and inspirations. We're standing
0: around a prep table in one of Rose's restaurants.
10: We are going to make one of my all-time comfort foods that we have at every celebration in my family, Kusa. She's got these
0: little green summer squash, some ground lamb, rice, a can of whole tomatoes, mint, cinnamon, onion, butter, and, of course, Clarified Lebanese olive oil, extra virgin. The end result, stuffed squash boiled in a pot of tomato sauce. It's a holiday dish. Her family eats it every year at Christmas. Previtt starts by coring the squash.
10: This is my grandma way of doing it. You just stick the knife in and like with a circular motion. I'm just literally using the knife to scrape off the insides. Previtt
0: grew up cooking. It was a way to show love and a way to maintain connections with her family's roots. She says her parents went overboard on teaching her how to cook.
10: These two parents who grew up in these very traditional communities, are in a town where absolutely no one is Italian or Lebanese. There's only 3,000 people. There were three stoplights in my hometown. And, you know, I think they quickly realized, like, if they didn't overcompensate on culture, we were going to lose it. Language was already lost. But they're like, okay, so what else can we do? Meaning my mom started catering Lebanese food out of her house. My dad on the weekends would sign up for street fairs and festivals. And we would sell, in his case, his little thing was Italian sausage sandwiches. Prevett didn't always
0: imagine she'd work around food. She got a graduate degree in public policy, interned at Human Rights Watch. She says she wanted to save the world. But then she met her husband, former Morning Edition host David Green. And plans changed.
10: When David came home and said, my dream job to be a foreign correspondent is happening, we just have to live in Russia. (laughs) it's like, ooh, that was not part of the dream job. And I did not have a job. And so I kind of just started tagging along. And we went to 30 countries in three years. So I also started to go to the Middle East, go to the Caucasus. We went to Morocco. I learned a lot about the food of these regions and I started to see, because of that unique and very special experience, how much the same they were. And then you had this epiphany. Yes, I, th- I do believe the epiphany was a product of sort of losing myself first. I was starting to feel more and more worthless honestly like because I wanted to contribute to the world. I wanted to make a difference. I was feeling very lost when David and I took the Trans-Siberian Railroad for three and a half weeks across Russia. There's nothing like a Siberian winter train Mm. trip to get you to really think. Dark and cold I imagine. Just like my heart at the time and I was just sitting there like thinking because there's barely any electricity. I mean there were no outlets and What I ended up, you know, really thinking about was what I really wanted to do. I finally got the courage to say to myself, you love hospitality. You loved bartending. You loved catering with your mom. You love bringing people together just like she taught you. Why don't you do that?
0: So she did. She opened her first restaurant in Washington, D.C., called Compass Rose in 2014. It was street food from her travels. And some of those recipes are in her cookbook, along with family recipes, like the kusa we're making today.
10: We need to do a couple things. We need to mix the meat with rice, um, cinnamon. This was a big debate with the family (laughs) was, does the cinnamon go in the meat or in the tomatoes? My mother, does put it in the meat. So I'm doing what she tells me to do, which is rare, but you know, we're trying. I was gonna say, trying to
0: learn recipes from your relatives. Okay. I don't know how you can do that. I feel like I asked my grandma, what do I do? And she's like, put a teaspoon
10: of this. Oh, it was brutal. It was brutal. Did they measure things for you? They did. Oh, wow, that's phenomenal. Yes, that, that's yes. rather impressive. But it was begging. And then I had them all in one room last winter. I thought, oh, this is perfect. Yeah. My aunts are all visiting. My mom's here. I'm just gonna get this done. By the time I walk in the house, my sister-in-law is like, what have you done? What are you you talking about? She goes, two of them are not even talking to each other because they started fighting over how my grandmother did it. And one was saying, oh, I made this with her more than you did. And I know that we do it this way. And so everybody's been repaired. Everyone's speaking again. So everybody had it mentally, though. Everyone mentally and emotionally, right? And everyone cooked it from the perspective of what they did with their mother. But it was a laborious process because they have never used measuring spoons or anything for this. (laughs) Like like
14: a pinch of this. Well, honestly, I don't
10: either when I make it. So I, no, I don't use, I don't measure this one because I've made it so many times. It's all from feel.
0: Yeah, you just poured that bag of rice in. Yeah, No measuring, here. No measuring here. <laughs> Some of the recipes in this cookbook also come from other families, home cooks, women in little towns in countries like Tunisia, Georgia, or Oman that Prevet met while she was researching food.
10: People always ask, how did you meet these women? Yeah, did you just like knock on doors <laughs> and walk in? Yes, sometimes. Uh, we've met someone in a market and they are so hospitable that they would actually welcome us to their home. We met a woman who was writing an English-language Tunisian cookbook. And so she invites us into her home And we start cooking this harissa and baking bread. And she just looks at me she's like, why are you here? What are you doing with us? And I is explaining. She goes, oh, I see now. You want to learn from the women. She goes, oh, that is so smart. Because here, all the men work in restaurants. And the men really don't know what they're doing. So it's way better that you're here.
0: Okay, so you're mixing up the lamb, the cinnamon salt, rice yes. and butter now you're just mixing up with your hands just with your hands yeah okay. back and in the kitchen we stuff it. the lamb and rice mixture into the hollowed out so squashes just,
10: you just push it down with your finger okay there's no other way to do this i don't know of any machine that will do this for you She's like you
0: have to get your hands dirty you have to get your hands no
10: what happens i can okay. kind of tell there's room in the bottom okay. so i tap the bottom
5: oh okay
0: once the kusa is stuffed we add it to a pot of the tomato mixture it bubbles away for about 20 minutes, and then it is time to eat. When we eat, I ask Prevet about something that has been on my mind a lot, given the war in Israel and Gaza. How does she wrestle with paying homage to the food of the Middle East while that region is in so much turmoil, violence, forced migration, and specifically food insecurity?
10: One of my goals with this book is to use the privilege I had in traveling the way that I did to bring back things to the U.S. for people that can't travel that way and introduce them to things, to food and through the food, the people and the cultures that I have been. And I'm so grateful and I don't mean I don't want to cry on the radio um, to experience. So from day one, I wanted to teach people here the hospitality that we were given all over this region, in places that Americans thought we were crazy to go to because they only associated it with war. We were welcomed into homes like we were failing, it's so sad, sorry, it's really bothering me. Um, it has been really hard, it's been really hard to put this book out at this time, sorry.
0: It sounds like you want people to understand the region better and understand that food can help break down some of those barriers that people think are so insurmountable.
10: Yeah, we all want to believe that, like, sitting at a table and breaking bread, I still believe in that. But I know myself, I couldn't go to Lebanon as a kid because there was a war the entire time. I would have loved to go to Yemen. But speaking of food insecurity, what an amazingly rich food culture they have that they themselves are starving. And so we do acknowledge that. But I just feel like especially when there's even bigger conflicts that scare everyone here that there's still a lot of people behind those stories like they're so human and they're doing trying to do the same thing we're doing here every day, which is just feed our families and keep them safe. And so I want to keep telling that message, but just it feels it does feel small right now when the problems are so big.
0: That was Rose Previtt. Her debut cookbook is called Maidan, Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Massachusetts is feeling the effect of record breaking immigration. Many thousands of migrants, mostly from Haiti, have arrived in the state homeless without knowing anyone to stay with. As Gabriella Emanuel of member station WBUR reports, these new arrivals are testing the state's longtime commitment to a strong safety net.
23: For 40 years, Massachusetts has prided itself on a unique law that requires the state to provide shelter to most homeless families. Jean-Francois Cessuis was told about this shelter system almost immediately after crossing into the U.S. three weeks ago. What he wasn't told was that same day the governor had declared the system full and created a wait list for homeless families. Cessuis discovered that only after arriving in Massachusetts. Speaking in Haitian Creole, Se Suisse described that's a sense of disappointment. He says he'd hoped to get help finding a place to stay. Instead, he slept at baggage claim in the airport with his wife and two-year-old son. I have no plans, he says. I am like a bird, one with nowhere to land. Sissuise's family is one of more than 100 waitlisted households who are scrambling to figure out what to do. We do not have enough space, service providers, or funds. From her lectern at the State House, Governor Moore Healey has been sounding the alarm. The state's shelter population has more than doubled in the last year. Right now, there are over 7,500 families in the system, many of them migrants. Months ago, the state ran out of space and started putting people in motels, often without caseworkers or other services. And it's a financial burden to the state, too, costing nearly $10,000 per family per month. Our shelter system cannot expand indefinitely. This level of demand is not sustainable. So Healy announced a cap on the number of families in state-run shelters. Homeless advocates worried where would families wait, especially now that it's winter. When the shelter doors closed in mid-November, there was no clear answer. We knew this was coming and to not even have a concrete plan at least one place to send these families, I think, is a, a huge failure. That's Donna Mitria of the local nonprofit La Collaborativa. In the weeks since implementing the waitlist, the state has converted conference rooms into space for 25 families to sleep. And a few religious and cultural groups have opened their doors. But Mitria says the uncertainty is hard. The trauma and the distress that the families that are locked out of the system is so incredible. Meanwhile, state lawmakers are in a months-long stalemate, unable to agree on an infusion of new funds. As they wrangle, Ce Suisse's son turned three. On the eve of his birthday, the family was told they couldn't sleep at baggage claim and to go to a train station along with a half-dozen other homeless families. At the last moment, a Haitian group helped them for the night. But it's a pattern of uncertainty that has played out repeatedly. <laughs> SESUIS SAYS HIS FAMILY CAME TO THE U.S. TO WORK AND GO TO SCHOOL AND TO LIVE LIKE HUMAN BEINGS. BUT FOR NOW, HE SAYS THAT GOAL IS STILL ASPIRATIONAL. FOR NPR NEWS, I'M GABRIELA EMANUEL.
5: This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com/go. An Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. An Act and Art Drawing School. Celebrating 20 years teaching drawing, painting, and manga in Acton Mass to kids, teens, and adults. ActonArt.com
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Candice Springer is in the studio with me. And, you know, the report that you just heard from WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reporting on, you know, how the Massachusetts budgets in limbo as state politicians are arguing over funding for migrant shelters and what that all means, that is a prime example of how WBUR is really doubling down on local journalism at a time when that is critical to our democracy, vital to our shared future here at WBUR. We've created editorial teams that are focused on uh, specific issues, education, the environment, arts and culture, investigations. WBUR is proud to provide this essential local journalism. We will always be free. We will be available to anyone who wants to avail themselves of uh, this journalism. Um, And that's why we're asking for your tax-deductible gift to help sustain WBUR for all of us. So please make your contribution. At WBUR.org or go to 1-800-909-9287. We have a very important reason for you to do that right now. Yes. um, I want to talk to the newbies for
13: a second. If you've never given to WBUR before, we've got extra incentive for you right now. But just for the next 10 minutes until 10 o'clock, if you have never given a gift, your first contribution to WBUR will be trippin'. And that is thanks to the support of our Murrow Society. This match is up to $2,500. So give right now if you've never given before, and we will triple that gift. But it is only until 10 o'clock or and if we run out of the money in this next 10 minutes. I think we can do it Sharon. I think we can do it. Oh, I know we can do it. <laughs> so go to wbur.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and remember these first time gifts. So if you have, you know, you listen every day and you love everything that you hear or maybe you listen to our podcasts or you've come to city space or you read the news online at wbur.org, please think about about giving us um, a gift in this next 10 minutes, showing us how much WBUR means to you. And that gift will be tripled. So I think $5 becomes $15, right? 15 becomes 45 Am I doing my math right? Yes, you are. Yes, am, you are. yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, remember, it's only till 10 o'clock. So WBUR.org 1-800-909-9287. Listening to
1: WBUR really gives me a precise understanding of what's going on in a very short amount of time.
12: I get a little smarter every time I listen and I learn all types of different information.
0: It's the sort of programming that helps me understand myself and helps me understand the world around me better.
15: I want to be able to participate in conversations and really contribute to what's going on around me and in the world, and and just to be conscious about what's happening in my life.
11: It's just an opportunity to learn about so many different subjects, learn about different places in the world that I never would otherwise have been exposed to.
5: For all the ways WBUR enriches your life, give monthly at WBUR.org.
6: And if some of those ways that WBUR enriches people's lives sound familiar to you because you've experienced them as well, we want to talk to you. If you have um, appreciated WBUR, if you're a listener, a reader, somebody who goes to CitySpace, if you've enjoyed what WBUR has to offer and you just haven't made a contribution yet, that's fine. We are here for you. Mm -hmm. But what we're asking you to do right now is to make your first contribution and your first contribution to WBUR will be triple matched. And here's what it boils down to. We need more members and Mm -hmm. member dollars. And that's what fuels the journalism and all the programming you get from WBUR. So again, if you make your first contribution right now, and that's just for the next seven minutes or so, some members of our uh, Murrow Society will triple that gift. Uh, This is just until 10 o'clock this morning, so get in on this triple match. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And if you can give monthly as a first-time giver, even $5
13: a month, which is what I give actually as a sustainer to WBUR, you can also get one of these very cute new WBUR winter hats that we have as our thanks for your support. And we will use that contribution to bring you more of the journalism you rely on. So $5 a month, your gift. will be tripled if you're a first-time giver, and you will get this cute little WBUR hat with braided tassels and a cute two-tone pom-pom as our thanks to you. But remember, it's only till 10 o'clock, so you have about six minutes left to give your first-time gift, and we will triple that gift. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
6: And you know it's relatively mild today, so you may not be thinking in terms of winter hats, but
13: gotta you prepare. Know, we, gotta, we gotta got, prepare. We got
6: It's it's only the second day of meteorological winter. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the, the cold will come, exactly. and you will be very happy to have this hat where you are repping WBUR, and you will be perhaps even more happy to know that if you had not previously contributed to WBUR, uh, you got your gift triple match. Now we're kind of working in past tense here. Here's here's <laughs> what you actually can do right now, which is, if you have not yet contributed to WBUR at all, and you you become a first-time contributor in the next six or so minutes, uh, your gift will be triple-matched. And you make that happen by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287, and thanks. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized
15: masters equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal, babson.edu slash gradprograms. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
23: I was in the kitchen washing dishes, watching testimony from a state house hearing that happened earlier in the day. The topic they were talking about was wheelchairs, and the testimony was just so striking. I stopped doing the dishes, and I began taking notes.
14: I felt
3: very vulnerable, extremely vulnerable.
23: Researchers estimate that more than half of wheelchairs break down in any typical six-month period, and it regularly takes months to get a chair fixed.
14: And the guy opens the package in front of me, and it's the wrong part. And it always is the wrong part.
23: After the story aired, I heard from dozens of listeners, and many weren't wheelchair users themselves. They just wanted to be part of a solution. I am Gabriela Emanuel, a health and science reporter here at WBUR. We want to tell you more stories like this one. If you can, please consider making a monthly gift at WBUR.org
13: at WBUR, we're doing everything to help you foster understanding about the most important issues around us, but also in that uh, story from Gabrielle and Manuel, you know, I you learn something about wheelchairs and it sort of just reminds me of, you know, everything that is going on in our communities, the small things in our lives and also the big things that are happening in the world. So if you are touched by these stories at WBUR, we are asking you to support us in these next uh, three minutes. If you've never given to WBUR before, now is the time to get in because we are having a triple match, which means if you are a first time giver, Your gift will be tripled up until 10 o'clock. That's it. Or if we run out of matching money, which is $2,500. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We need more members. Member dollars. Listener support is the backbone of WBUR. So please consider how much
6: WBUR means to you and give right now. And the way you give is to go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And again, you know, you may have been listening to WBUR for a while. You may hear us talk about members and you may just kind of about your day and not necessarily think it has anything to do Mm -hmm. with you and that's Mm -hmm. completely understandable we don't ask you to think about this all the time but the reality is that WBUR uh, exists on uh, listener support our listeners who become members and what we need is more members and that's how to keep WBUR thriving we need those member dollars to fuel this journalism and all the programming that you get from WBUR so Make your first ever contribution to WBUR right now, and your gift will be tripled. So if you can uh, contribute $5 a month, uh, that becomes $15 a month at, you know, no extra burden to you. Uh, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And, you
13: know, we have a very cute WBUR hat if you can give $5 a month. 5 becomes 15 You can get a WBUR winter hat to get you ready for the cold. Uh, if you go to WBUR.org, or call 1-800-909-9287. And we thank you so much for your support.
4: I'm executive producer of podcasts, Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.